0: Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thank you for joining me back at the canteen. This is one of our regular segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. If there's one thing we've learned so far in our study of the Gospel of Luke, it's that Jesus' way of doing things is often quite different from our way of doing things. And this morning, Pastor Blake continues to dive into the Sermon on the Mount, where we see another example of exactly that. So the question is, will we allow Jesus to be the one who trains us as we walk forward day by day? Let's listen in and hear more in this week's message.
1: Hey, my name is Blake. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Christ Community Church, uh, leading us on this mission to join Jesus and going out to make disciples. And um, let me just begin by saying this. Um, One day, I dream of preaching a sermon that will be mentioned every week for the next three weeks, Josh Ballard. Uh, So, um, you know, we'll just just leave it at that. We're going to try. I'm going to take another stab at it today. Uh, because I need to hear this sermon just as much as you. If you want to grab your Bible and open to Luke six, Luke six, we've been uh, going through. If you want to preach a good sermon, just preach the sermon that Jesus preached. So that's what we're going to try to do. Um, Jesus is preaching a sermon on the plain in Luke six. In Luke six, so we're going to be there uh, beginning in verse thirty-seven. Uh, recently, Caitlin and I. We took Preston, our son, to a restaurant here in town that had some of those quarter vending machines near the front door. You know what I'm talking about, right? Especially if you're parents, you know what I'm talking about. Preston knew we were going there. He was excited to go there. He knew the vending machines were there, so he had conveniently put in his pocket some of his quarters. And he was uh, looking forward to after the meal. So we finish our meal. We're on our way out, and Preston goes to to the quarter machine. And the thing that we all dream about happened. Preston puts in his quarter, he twists the knob, and out comes not one, not two, but three little trinket toys, <laughs> jackpot, like that, that is the day that we all dream of with the quarter machines, that the, the machine messes up and we get multiple little toys, and so we've got all kinds of little gold rings floating around our house right now, but we all love this idea, right? that you get out of something what you put into it. And when you get more, that's just a bonus. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I'm constantly hoping that when I put my quarter into something in life, something will happen that causes multiple toys to fall in my hand. That I'll put in my quarter and blessings will rain down. We want our time to return to us. We want our money to return to us. We want our stuff and our efforts even to return to us. That's why I believe we just start salivating when we hear what Jesus says next in this sermon. And he begins to roll off this list of things that, that we get when we do these certain things. Read with me Jesus' words in the first couple of verses, 37 and 38. Jesus is saying to his disciples, to to any who will listen in the crowd, do not judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is describing the way that our world operates and we love it because we can control it if I don't judge I don't get judged if I don't condemn I don't get condemned well I don't want to be judged and I don't want to be condemned so it's in it's it's in my control I just don't judge people I don't get judged I want to be forgiven I just got to forgive people I want to be given too I want bless. I want three trinkets to fall out of the thing All I have to do is be generous with my stuff. What I get out is what I put in. And so when we read these initial verses, for some of us, it's really hard to even think about what's said next because our mind automatically runs to the goals and the things that we want to do with this. Don't judge people. Don't condemn people. Be forgiving and be generous. I've got my goals for the day. We can go home. This is what I'm going to do. Because if I put those things in my life, I'm going to get out a life that is free from being judged, free from condemnation, full of forgiveness and blessing. And I love the idea that if I put in these things, I'm getting something good on the other side. One blessing in my life has been that Barbara, my wife Caitlin's grandmother, also known as Mama, moved out to Shelbyville in the last few years so not long ago she took a really important step in moving into a community and she opened an account at a local bank well shortly after she opened that account she didn't have her card back all the things she went to make a withdrawal from her account and so she goes into the bank and she steps up to the teller and she explained that she would just opened this account but she needed to get some money out and she didn't have her stuff and and so she asked if they could look up her account and help her get her money. Well, the search was on. Tell me your name. I'm going to need some information from you. And after several minutes of searching without success, things were getting tense. Like, has this little local bank in Shelbyville lost my money? What's going on here? And then it clicked with the teller. And the teller looked at Mama and said, Ma'am, remind me again which bank you opened your account with? Shortly after that, Mama turned around walked out and went to the bank down the street. (laughs) It could happen to the best of us, right? Why do I tell that story? Because if we read these two verses that Jesus says here in the middle of this sermon, and we walk away thinking, I've got to quit judging people and be more forgiving, it's like we're opening an account at the bank of me. I'm counting on me. I'm, I'm betting, making an investment, putting a deposit down on my good actions so that I can withdraw the blessings and the forgiveness and the perceived freedom of no judgment. We all love that idea that, that you get out of something what you put into it until we realize that many times we've invested in ourself instead of in our Savior we're putting things in a completely different bank. Many of us spend our lives making investments in the bank of me. And then one day when we, when we realize that we're not experiencing the returns that we'd hoped for, we show up at the bank of God and we're confused when the teller says, now what account, what bank did you open your account at? So if we read this passage and we walk away saying, I've got to be less judgmental. I've got to be more forgiving I've just got to be more generous. We're in trouble. It's a good thing for me, and it's a good thing for you that Jesus wasn't done preaching. So, right after Jesus lines up all of these do this, get that statements, he tells a story. He paints a picture by asking two questions. He says, Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into the pit? It's a pretty pretty vivid word picture, isn't it? The blind leading the blind. H.G. Wells wrote a a short fiction story entitled The Country of the Blind. It's about this uh, inaccessible, luxurious valley in the mountains of Ecuador, where due to some strange disease, everyone in in the valley is blind. And as he tells the story, after 15 generations of this blindness, there was no memory of, of sight or color, or or what it looked like to see the outside world at all. Until one day, a man from the outside literally stumbles into their, he falls down the mountain into their forgotten country. And so Wells begins to tell the story that this man who falls into the country, he's getting the people together and he's trying to tell them about sight. He says they would sit with their faces downcast and their ears turned intelligently towards him. And he did his best to tell them what it was to see, but the people in this valley never believed him. They thought the guy was crazy. So this guy falls into the valley. He's trying to explain sight. They don't believe him, and in the process, because every story needs a good love story, the guy falls in love with a girl. And he goes to the girl's father, Jacob, and he says, "I want to marry your daughter." Well, Jakob's a little uncomfortable with this, so he goes to the doctor in town to talk to him about it. And and a conversation begins, and the doctor ends up saying to the father, I think I may say with reasonable certainty that in order to cure him completely, all we need to do is a simple and easy surgical operation, namely, to remove these irritating bodies he calls his eyes. And the father says, and then he'll be sane. And the doctor says, then he will be perfectly sane and a quite admirable citizen. That's the blind leading the blind. Y'all, if we walk away from here today thinking that, that we just have to judge less and give more, we'll not only be blind to what's happening in our lives, but we'll be leading others into that same pit. We'll, we'll end up in this vicious battle of who's judging less. In Luke 11, 24 through 26, Jesus says this about how sin and evil multiplies in our lives. He says, "'When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, "'it roams through waterless places looking for rest "'and not finding rest, it then says, "'Well, I'll go back to my house that I came from. "'Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order, "'and then it goes and brings seven other spirits "'more evil than itself and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the person's last condition is worse than the first. You see, in all of our attempts to to work on our judgmental and resentful attitudes, our attempts to clean house often make it easier for Satan to get a foothold in our lives. He's convinced us, you see, in those moments to invest in ourselves instead of in the Savior. Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, imagine that a little boy falls down and scrapes his knee. He's not seriously hurt, but, but he can't seem to calm down. He's, he's crying, he's weeping, and, and his dad says to him, Son, get up. Be a man. You don't want to be seen as weak, do you? Stop it. Stop crying. And Tim Keller asked the question, Well, can, can that motivation help this little boy stop crying? It can. Maybe it has for some of you. But his dad's words can help him sweep his house, tame his emotions, get some control. But then what happens? The little boy hasn't just stopped crying. No. Now he's given himself to a new master, a master of the fear of appearing weak. Tim Keller goes on to paint the picture of how this impacts our lives. He says, now imagine that this becomes a driving force in the young man's life. Never look weak. Weakness makes you deficient as a person, so cover it at all costs. What would that guy's marriage look like, Keller asks. You can't have a healthy marriage if you're always scared of looking weak, refusing to be vulnerable, or shutting off your emotions. So yes, through the dad's motivation, the little boy was able to stop crying for a moment but he did so by giving himself to a new master, a worse master. You see, church, you and I, we can train ourselves to be judgment-free and at the same time be giving ourselves to a master that says truth is relative. You decide what truth is for you. And before long, you're floating in this constant sea of uncertainty with motion sickness that can't be eased because you just don't know what's real. You can train yourself to to not be condemning and at the same time give yourself to a master of apathy. You just quit caring. And before long, depression that seems to have no bottom sets in because life is just without purpose. You can train yourself to, to be forgiving no matter what, always be the one to forgive. And at the same time, you're giving yourself to a master of this internal bitterness and resentment and tongue-biting that eats away at your soul one thought at a time. And before long, you don't like or trust yourself, and insecurities are paralyzing you. You can train yourself to be generous. And at the same time, give yourself to a master of pride that convinces you that you're the most generous person you know. You deserve all the blessings you received. And before long, you find yourself lonely because no one wants to be around your arrogance. Do you see the vicious cycle? How do we get out of that? We have to learn to trust Jesus. You have to trust Jesus to train you. Jesus continues in verse 40. He asked the question in 39 Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? And then he says this A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You see, Jesus wants them to know clearly that, man, when it's just you as humans trying to figure out who's less judgmental or who's more forgiving, man, it's the blind leading the blind, but there's a teacher that can train you differently. I am he. Jesus didn't say judge not to create some legalistic, unattainable standard. He said it to show those listening that they were unable to achieve that on their own. They couldn't learn that from themselves or from their neighbor. In those cases, everyone ends up in the pit. And so Jesus says this to remind those listening that if they will trust him to train them, then one day when they're fully trained, they will be like him, loving, forgiving, generous and merciful. You see, Jesus doesn't just want you to trust Him for salvation. He wants you to trust Him to train you. Think for a moment, how cruel would God have to be if He were to say, I'll save you from your sins, but you've got a lifetime of suffering and like figuring out the consequences of those sins on your own first. So train yourself figure out how to navigate the world and survive for the next couple decades, and then, you know, I'll save you from your sins after that. But that's not what he does. Jesus says he will train us to be like him if we will trust him to do so. quick show of hands, there will be no judgment here. See what I did there? Whew, take a breath. How many of you have seen The Karate Kid? If you haven't seen The Karate Kid, you should, it's a great movie. Uh, Karate Kid. In the Karate Kid, many people have heard or seen the reference. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you, you probably remember this. You've heard this reference. Wax on, wax off, breathe. The breathing is important. Wax on, wax off, breathe. Many of you have probably heard that or seen that. But a lot of us often forget the secret pact that they entered into right before this happened. This is a picture of the scene and, and in the movie, Mr. Miyagi says to Daniel, we make a pact. I promise to teach you karate. This is my part. He says, you, you promise to learn. I say, you do. No questions. This is your part. Deal? Well, of course, Daniel's like, deal! Mr. Miyagi says, first, wash out the cars. And if you remember, if you've seen the movie, Daniel, he, he begins to question, wash all the car, what and he goes, ah, and he stops him. He said, Remember, deal, no questions. Because Mr. Miyagi needs him to trust him if he's going to train him. Y'all, you know, Jesus says to you, I promise to train you how to be my disciple to live and to love like I do, to be forgiving and merciful like I am, to be generous like I am. That is my part. I promise I will train you. You promise to learn. I say you do. No questions. That's your part. Deal? And let me be the first to tell you, Jesus might ask you to do some absurd things, some crazy things, We might want to ask him questions like, Jesus, the first thing you want me to do is to get in an oversized bathtub in my clothes and go completely underwater in front of my church family, and they're going to call it baptism? What? Jesus, you want me to invite who to church? Did you not hear what they said to me last week? Wait, not just the church. You want me to invite them into my life too? How would I do that? Jesus, you want me to give up my vacation and go on a mission trip instead? Come on now, you've got to be crazy. You want me to give away what? Jesus, you want me to learn Spanish? Jesus, haven't you seen all the statistics? It's easier to learn language when you're like six. I'm like 66. I can't learn Spanish. Ah, Remember, I say you do. No questions. If you remember nothing else today, may that phrase, trust Jesus to train you, be fused to your brain. It's so hard for us to accept this, to, to wrestle with this, to grasp this. And Jesus knew that it was hard for those listening on this day. Weren't, their hearts weren't quite getting it either. They still don't trust Jesus to work out the kinks in their lives, and, and, and they don't know what it looks like for them to train him, train them. It's hard for all of us to, to accept this gift of grace. So Jesus gives another example that helps them understand what he's pressing on. He begins in verse 41. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrite. I don't think you probably said it that way. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take out the splinter in your brother's eye. Now, most everyone, including myself, (laughs) like you hear this and you find yourself thinking about one of two things. Number one is this. I have got to help that brother get the log out of his eye. Like, you just can't help it. Like, you read it, and you hear it, and you know it's wrong, but you're still thinking about that person that you really wish would hear this. That's one. The second is the person that says, I have got to figure out how to get this beam out of my eye, right? And the irony, perhaps the beauty, is that both of those responses make Jesus' point perfectly. You see the response to this illustration isn't what should I do? What have I got to do? The right response is Jesus, I trust you to take the beam of wood out of my eye. I trust you to do that. There's a 67-year-old woman in the UK went to the hospital for a cataract surgery and as the anesthesiologist went to numb her eye for the surgery he noticed this light blue mass under her top eyelid. A few minutes later, doctors had discovered and removed 27 contacts that had been lost in her eye. 27, isn't that fantastic? (laughs) 27 contacts in her eye. Just for the record, there was 10 in one pile and 17 in another, (laughs) it's crazy. She had been wearing disposable contacts for 35 years and apparently 27 times while taking her contacts out. She'd been unable to find the contact, Assumed that she had dropped it and convinced herself just to put a new one in. (laughs) That's crazy. She had no idea. Doctors explained in a report that was done on this because people were amazed that there was no way that she could have had regular checkups with her eye doctor. Like it would have shown up somewhere on a report. Uh, If she had been doing that, right, the the contacts would have been found and removed much earlier. And we laugh because it seems crazy, but that's us. Who needs regular checkups with the eye doctor? Just give me the contacts. Call the eye doctor's office. Couldn't you just give me my prescription? I know I haven't been in a couple years, but I'd like to order some contacts. because here's what our brain tells us. As long as I can see clearly for today, as long as I can see where I'm going today, I'll just keep right on going. If it doesn't bother me too much, I'll just just keep moving. Mm. And what we don't often realize in those moments is there's a chunk of junk accumulating in our eyes and in our lives that's actually preventing us from seeing anything clearly at all. Trust Jesus to train you, but also trust Jesus to take the beam out of your eye. You're like, Blake, how do, how do I do that? I want to, but what does that even look like? I, I mean, and, and this is where I actually think the visual of having Jesus remove a beam from our eye teaches us more than meets the eye. If that operation, right, if that operation of beam removal is going to be successful, you and I have to be still. You make any sudden movements during eye surgery and it's not ending well. Fair to say? In the same way, when you make any sudden movements while Jesus is trying to remove sin in your life, it's not ending well. And yet you think about how often we do this. We, we get convicted about something and to avoid it, man, we press into action as fast as we can. We go and we do to make ourselves feel better. We go do something fun to, to get away from it. How many of us become aware of sin only to be afraid, so afraid of removing it that, that we get busy to distract ourselves from the real problem? We overfunction in order to avoid. If we don't sit still before the Lord, the real work of training can't begin. Right before the Red Sea was part of the Israelites were faced with being slaughtered by the Egyptian army. Right? We like to tell the story of the sea splitting, but we forget the tense moment of like looking at the water, looking behind you, and know there's an army coming with swords to chop your head off. And Moses looks at the people and says, the Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Okay. Faced by the evils and injustices of this world, David wrote in Psalm 37:7, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Well, that'd be fine. But then he says this, don't be agitated by one who prospers in his way by the person who carries out evil plans. You mean to tell me you want me to be still and let you work on my sin while I watch evil people prosper? Okay, Lord real cool. Trust me to train you. Says Jesus. When Elijah was so scared that he that he was running for his life. You ever ran for your life? You may have said you were, but not really. Elijah's running for his life, he hides in a cave. And in that moment God's instruction to him was go and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. Like actually go stand out where they can see you on the side of a mountain. And then, after a windstorm and an earthquake and a fire, the Lord's voice came in a still, small whisper. If the operation of beam removal is going to be successful, you and I have to be still. And that's a fight. That means you're going to have to like cut out time to stop and to slow down. You're going to have to develop the discipline. You're going to have to face your fears, which most of us don't really want to do that. You're going to have to take an honest look in the mirror. Like when you, when you get convicted and you see something in your life that you don't like, you've got to sit with it for a minute and let the Lord tell you what he thinks about that. And how he's going to heal you. You have to learn to quiet your soul. We fill our souls with so many things, we're gonna talk about this more next week. We fill our souls with so many things that that we often can't even be still and sit with ourselves because there's so many things going on in there. We have to fight the urge for another quick hit of media or self help or improvement that we think we can make. Charles Spurgeon has wisdom on this idea of Jesus' followers being still. He says, why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life? He says, because they neglect their closets and do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word. They love the wheat, but they don't grind it. They would have the corn, but they won't go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop to drink it. And then he says, from such folly, deliver us, O Lord. And deliver us, he does. Jesus removes the beam from your eye. And then he straps it on his back and he carries it to Golgotha. And he was still as they nailed him to the beam of a cross. And by being still as he was wrongfully accused and beaten and mocked and whipped and crucified, he trained you. And he made a way for you to be like him and to be with him forever. Who knew that your eye surgery would cost him so much? You and I, you see, we have to trust Jesus to train us. We have to trust him to take away the beam. We have to be still. That doesn't mean that we don't try to be less judgmental. That doesn't mean that we don't try to help others see the splinter in their eye. That doesn't mean that we don't work on forgiveness or generosity. We try. We, We absolutely try. But when we try, we understand that our efforts aren't for us. We don't try so that we might earn grace. There is no expectation that that if grace has been given to you, that you have to fix your life up so that you're deserving of it at the end. You are no more justified, like no less justified today than you will be when you stand in front of the presence of the Creator God. Jesus has paid the price. See, when we try, it's not for us not about continual improvement. We try so that others might see clearly how much Jesus loves us. That helps them to see who who they can go to for the splinter in their eye. We try so that others might see and understand the grace that Jesus has for them. And that often happens, you see, in the midst of our mistakes. What if in trying to be less judgmental, in our failure, was actually the moment that someone understood the grace that God has for them. I was listening to the Witness and Persecution podcast this weekend with Nick Ripkin, and he shared a story from his time as a missionary in Africa. He'd been working really hard to, to learn their language, and he'd learned enough to be preaching to a group of 150 people or so in this African gathering. And he was moving right through his sermon when all of a sudden the room that was usually busy and full of activity came to a hushed silence. He knew that he'd said something that wasn't right. So he went back in his head to the line that had caused the silence and he he remembered that he tried to use the verb for to try. He knew he said something wrong, but he wasn't sure what he said. And so he said, we're just sitting there in this awkward silence. And and later he would learn that in his attempt to say, to try, he had accidentally said the most offensive, vulgar word in their language. So after several minutes, he says this older lady in the crowd stood up and spoke. And in their language, she said, let's stand together and praise God in Jesus' name that we have a white man that loves us so much that he's working so hard to try, and she says it correctly, to use our language. Nick says, I immediately saw my mistake. But the beauty of it is that in that moment, the church immediately saw the grace of God through the act of this woman and through the failure of Nick you see, no matter where our journey takes us, our destination is always the tree. We're always headed to the cross, even in our efforts. So, today, do I want you to quit trying? No. I want you to keep trying. But I want us to understand that in our efforts to be less judgmental, to be more generous, to be more giving or forgiving, It's probably not our successes that the Lord will use to train us. It's our failures in that. And that's a beautiful thing. As the band comes, we get the opportunity to invite any of you who have trusted Jesus and followed him in believers' baptism to take communion. And as you take communion, you proclaim that I trust Jesus, not just to save me, but to train me. You can proclaim to everyone here today that you're you're trusting Jesus to take the beam out of your eye. The wafer and the juice that that you'll take this morning are symbolic of his body and his blood that that he sacrificed on the beam of the cross to pay for your sin. And when you come through and you take communion today, I want to remind you that you earn nothing when you take those elements. Instead, it's an act of weakness You are proclaiming to everybody in the room, everyone who will see that you need the blood and body of Jesus Christ to cover your sins. To take communion is is an act of confession. You're confessing to, to Jesus and to those here today that you are weak and making mistakes and in need of grace. Maybe today you're struggling to trust Jesus at all. Maybe there's something that rings true in Peggy's story with you. I went through the motions. I came forward when the preacher said to come forward. I prayed until I thought it took. I even got baptized. But I never really trusted him. Maybe today you have trusted him for salvation, but, but today you're realizing that you basically told Jesus you'd take it from there. If either of those are you, if you are struggling to trust Jesus today, I want to invite you to come. And be still before the Lord. Just come down here in the front, find a chair in the back, and be still in the shadow of the cross. Pray. Sit in silence. Tell Jesus how much you need him. Whatever you need to do, do to help your soul be still before the Lord. It's important, and it matters. And he is faithful to restore you in those moments. Let me pray for us. God, you are a God of action and of love. you have made us in your image and we love to serve and go and be active and do and yet Lord you do so much in us when we are still before you and so Lord I just pray that in this moment your spirit would train us give us just a taste of all that you want to do Help us to to catch just a glimpse of who we can be in you. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Give us the courage to sit in your presence. Train us. Train us to be a people who love well, who show mercy, who give generously, forgive Lord in this moment we just confess to you that we need you we don't know we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you Father Spirit you love each of us one person at a time in a way that only our creator can and so I pray that you would lead each person do this in time of response here in just a few moments. Speak to them, but also speak to us collectively as a church. Remind us of your grace, push us to it. Lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, We hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, If you're a part of Christ Community, hey, let's let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ Community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in and experienced Christian community as it was meant to be. And continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack a production of Christ Community Church The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright and Josiah Ward You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com